I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself in saying that since COVID has started, I have spent a ton more time in front of a computer screen. And looking back, perhaps it would have been a wise investment for me to buy some shares in Amazon as people have been spending and shopping and acquiring probably at a higher rate online than before, which led me to think and wonder about the function of buying and shopping, et cetera, et cetera. It might be that over the years, the experience of shopping has changed and adapted and advertisers have become way more advanced in tapping into the areas of our brain that want stuff, that need stuff. But perhaps the function of buying and acquiring and shopping is no different than it was years ago. So I asked my good friend to join me who knows a lot more about this stuff than I do so we can have a talk about shopping and buying and acquiring and all that sort of stuff, both from an anecdotal place and from a scientific place. I think this is a really relevant one and an enjoyable one all at the same time. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mental Filter. My name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker. I own and run a practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. I am joined by a fellow colleague, someone I consider a friend, and I'm looking forward to this topic, which I think no matter who you are, are going to be able to relate to it. As you heard in the introduction, it has to do with shopping, which is something we all do on a regular basis and talk about the ins and outs of it and what we get out of it, the types of it, when does it become problematic, things like that. And so I will now turn it over to my friend and colleague, Greg, to introduce himself and we'll get right to it. Thanks for having me, Shmuel. Uh, my name is Greg Chasson. I am a licensed psychologist in Illinois and Maryland. I own and operate Obsessive Compulsive Solutions of Chicago, which is a private practice. And I'm an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. I'm also the director of clinical training. So I train all the clinical psychologists of tomorrow for better or worse. <laughs> Hopefully a little bit better than worse, but you know, neither here nor there. It depends who you ask. <laughs> and so one of the reasons why I asked Greg, who I have a a nice long history with to join today and be the co-host is because he has particular experience in this area when it becomes problematic. And so we'll get to it a little bit later as far as when shopping becomes too much or holding on to things becomes too much and becomes an issue for people, but we'll get there. So let's start with from like a general perspective that there's different types of shopping or, you know, the fancier word maybe in the clinical world would be acquiring. So there's shopping for things that we need to survive. And then there's things for shelter and clothing and leisure and all different types of these areas of shopping. So I'm curious your insight, and I'm sure it depends on what type of shopping there is. Like what does a person get out of buying something? Yeah. So that was a good lead in because it really does depend, right? It depends on the circumstance, the context. I think of it more as acquiring than shopping because acquiring doesn't have to happen just from shopping. People can give you things or you could borrow things or you could uh, rent. There are things that come to you passively 
um, people put things in your mailbox or bring over candy or cookies, or there's active approaches, which is probably more what you would consider shopping, where you go out and you get things. And shopping really has a number of functions. So when I think about a behavior, I think about the function, what's the purpose of it. And just like any behavior, it's going to have multiple potential functions. And so really that's the question you're asking is what is the function of the shopping? And I think it depends on the circumstance. So I'll give you some examples and then you can kind of think about it that way. Obviously one purpose of shopping is because you need items for survival, right? I shop for food because, well, ideally I shop because I want to eat and survive. Sometimes I shop for food because, uh, you know, food gives me pleasure. But really, those are two separate functions, even just for the same looking behavior of shopping for food, right? You see how a function is really critical because it could even look different for the same behavior that you're staring at, right? Right. Um, it could also be shopping for a sense of control, shopping for pleasure. You know, it could be about avoiding negative experiences, experiential avoidance, wanting to avoid negative emotions. So, you know, some people will shop so that they can distract themselves from some of the chaos going on in their lives, some of the distress. Uh, sometimes people shop or the function of it is even vindictive. So they might even shop to get back at somebody or, oh, my husband doesn't think that I can shop or my wife doesn't think I can shop. Well, let me go buy this and show them that I can do that sort of thing, right? So there are so many contexts that it'd be hard to define it in a single way. Right. That last example is a good one. That's a little bit, it feels like a, a sense of control or independence. Like I've met people and work with people. It's like to really demonstrate, well, I could spend, I could buy. Now, whether it's actually detrimental and I have to pay those bills at the end of the day is something else, but it's, it's for them demonstrating how they could be independent and, and make their own choices. Right. Well, and the problem is the choices are biased, right? It's subjective. I'm going to go spend $1,500 on a new iPhone or a new, you know, a new laptop. It's very easy post hoc to rationalize that and to say, well, you know, I deserve it. I've been good. Or, you know, I earned that extra bonus this week. It doesn't matter that we're in the middle of an epidemic and it's possible I'll lose my job any day now and the savings would be really smart. I deserve some pleasure. My mental health deserves it. I need this stuff. It's very easy to post hoc rationalize this stuff. Yeah, it's a mind game. And I, I think in, in essence, that's sort of when politics aside, but when there's a stimulus, that's sort of what they're banking on is that, oh, there's this influx of money, go spend it. Exactly. That's why, you know, certain political parties like the immediate stimulus, whereas other, you know, types of political approaches are payroll tax cuts and things that are slow over time. And what happens is that the argument is that people tend to save those types of cuts and savings because it's not this immediate amount of money that's burning in your pocket. Right. So I do think you're right. I think they bank on people spending that money. I bet you'd ask people, most people would tell you they've spent that stimulus check already. Before it even comes in the mail. Before right. it even comes in the mail. You bought something on credit. Right. I saw that new outfit, Shmuel. I know exactly what you spent yours on. People can't see me, you know. <laughs> they can't see what I'm wearing. And I really like the point you said earlier of that I use the word shopping, but it's really broader than shopping. Acquiring is somehow obtaining something, I would say probably something tangible in many different ways. Do you think that it can accomplish the same thing, whether you're actually exchanging something of value for it, paying something like that? It can accomplish the same function? Uh, do you mean like shopping versus non-shopping ways of acquiring? Yes. Yeah, I do. I think there's a 
really a mixture of the functions of both of those types of acquiring. And I think sometimes they can be aligned and sometimes they can be totally different. I think bartering is an example, right? If you were to give me um, 15 sessions of psychotherapy in exchange, if I'm a carpenter and I were to give you 15 hours of carpentry, I don't think that's any different than me just handing you a thousand bucks for 15, you know, I think it's really about the value and the function rather than really the uh, symbolism of the cash. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and you can get the same stimulation or it can serve the same function. So if back in the day we were trading baseball cards. Yep, exactly. I mean, I don't know how many kids know of trading baseball cards now. The the Pokemon. <laughs> it's all about Pokemon. Uh, right. Pokemon. So if we were trading baseball cards and you gave me a Ryan Sandberg. You're showing a, your age. <laughs> or, a Sean, or a Sean Dunstan or... Um, Come on, Andre, Andre Dawson. Dawson. Oh, Andre look Dawson. at you. <laughs> there you go. You know, you give me an Andre Dawson for, I don't know, a Frank Thomas. Yep. Then, you know, it's, it would accomplish the same thing. How about, you probably know more about this than me. How about like neurologically? You know, what's, what's going on in the brain when I acquire something? What does it do for me? Again, I think it depends on the function of the behavior, right? Okay. If it's a pleasure-ridden experience, like if I'm buying myself a brand new cell phone or a new car, ooh, that one definitely stimulates the neurological functioning. You know what I mean? I think a lot of it has to do with the pleasure centers of the brain, the nucleus accumbens and things like that. But sometimes obtaining or acquiring things really is just automatic or habitual, in which case the striatum is really involved, which is the part of the brain where there's a lot of habit formation. And if there's a lot of planning and envisioning and executing, the prefrontal cortex can really get involved. If there's a lot of decision-making, then we're talking about parts of the process that are really, in some ways, highly specific to the cognitive capacity of humans, where we're really anticipating the future, thinking about like a chess game. If I buy this and don't save, what does that mean for my child's tuition? You know, that kind of thing. So you mentioned the, the habit forming. Does that mean that if I have a certain type of uh habitual type of spending habits and after years I come to the conclusion that hey this is not going to continue to work I just I can't continue to do this does that make it so much harder to change because there's these pathways in the brain that I've been tapping into again and again and again and again it definitely changes I mean I think the research shows that things start out in the brain and just behaviorally in a certain way it's much more conscious and novel and then over time it becomes sort of just part of the routine. So if every time you go into 7-Eleven, um, are they a sponsor of your podcast, by the way? <laughs> well, they are now. <laughs> if, if someone is listening right now from 7-Eleven corporate, look me up. Right. If you walk into a 7-Eleven, not one of their competitors, because 7-Eleven is amazing. Um, you would walk in and you, you know, maybe you've been doing this for 30 years. You always go in because you love their coffee. But every time you go in there, you also pick up the New York Times. Well, you walk in there, you remember those things of paper where it had like a written word on it? So right. maybe that was a, a habit. At first, you would go in there and you'd be excited about the New York Times. It was part of your, your routine. Now you kind of just do it automatically because if you don't, it just feels really weird. And it feel, it's just almost, you don't even think about it. You just grab the paper and the coffee. And that kind of acquiring is probably activating a different type of neural pattern because it's not really necessarily the same as when you, it was novel when you first did it. And in a way, you, we don't really realize what it does for us until we stop doing it. So yeah, I mean, 7-11, in the 7-Eleven example is you don't really know necessarily what the 
acquisition of the New York Times does for me until I try to go in there and leave the paper there and just buy the coffee. Well, it's definitely jolting. Maybe that example would be a little easier for some people than others. But if you just extrapolate to a bigger scenario, I mean, it's, you know, to something that's more expensive or more grand or more seemingly uh, important to your identity. Yeah, it becomes a little bit more jolting. To you. Right, right. And, you know, it's interesting, you made that point of the planning and the anticipation. Can all that planning so let's say uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you was about, is there a difference in the stimulation between acquiring online versus in person? And obviously that has changed over the years and there's so much more of acquiring done online than in person. So the anticipation and the preparing, so say I'm what used to be called window shopping, <laughs> I don't even know if that exists, or going to a store and looking and looking and looking and looking and only buying maybe something minimal or... I know that I've done that before where I have gone and looked at stuff and I'm like, oh, that would be really cool. That would be great. I like this. I like this. And then, no, I, this, is not, this is not the right move. Or maybe order a bunch of stuff online and then return them. Yeah, that's a common tendency. So can the anticipation and the planning, again, I know it depends, but can that feed the same neurological pathways without the actual acquiring? I do think it can, it can tap into it. It can leverage it. And I think that's part of the problem. But I actually think most of the time, at least where it becomes problematic, shopping and acquiring is highly impulsive. So rather than um, a lot of anticipation and planning, a lot of it is sort of whim, right? And this is why adaptive advertising is so pervasive. I mean, I know everything there is to know about this topic in a lot of ways. And I still am a sucker for the Facebook ad that just through its, its formula determined that I'm very interested in that new uh, carpenter hammer because I Google carpentry. It's like, hey, this hammer is for you. And it pops up on your feed, Instagram or Twitter or on your Google advertisement. Yeah, I've fallen victim to that too. I'm like, yeah, I need this hammer. Of course, this hammer is perfect. It's exactly what I needed, right? Right. And so you buy the hammer and then the wife yells at you, you know, like this is how it works. That's the impulsivity. And that's where I think that a lot of the anticipation and planning actually mitigates that rather than facilitates it. So you're asking whether or not it, it sort of co-ops that system and allows you to fulfill some of the pleasure. And, and I think it can. I think you see people that sometimes will do that. I think the actual obtaining of the item is probably the final sort of pleasure point, the climax of the experience, so to speak, right? But I actually think if anything, the executive functioning or the planning and the anticipation is what helps you stem it, helps you mitigate it. So you have these primal tendencies for things, right? Like if a brownie is put in front of you and you're hungry, you're going to have a really hard time saying no to that brownie, right? But if you can, with your prefrontal cortex and some of your executive functioning, say, wait a second, I'm right on the border of getting diabetes. I... I'm really scared about the coronavirus. I want to make sure I'm being healthy. Man, the, these, uh, these love handles are surely not getting my wife excited at night. So I think a lot of the times we have this butting of heads between our primal tendencies and our higher level functioning and cognitions that are telling us, hey, look, yes, that brownie is delicious. It will give you the calories and fat that you need to survive if we were in the middle of a cave. But right now you don't live in a cave. Fat and sugar is plentiful. And if you eat that, you're going to continue to have a problem, right? And so you have these competing forces, these domain-specific mechanisms in your brain that are not exactly dancing 
synchronously. Does that make sense? No, very well said. Remember there was a movie, I forget the name of the movie, a couple of years back. I didn't watch it. It was all about advertising and about everything is manipulated and everything sort of like came to life. I forget the name of it. It's basically almost like Big Brother on steroids of like everything is just manipulated around you and nothing is real. It's almost like the, the matrix of like what's real and what's not. And I think you can easily argue that the mission statement, I mean, anyone listening who's in this industry, I hold no judgment, but one can argue that the mission statement of the advertising marketing industry is to tap into those primal pleasure points or needs and give the message that you deserve this. You need this. Your life will be better with this. If you don't have it, you're missing out. I don't think a hundred years ago, they knew what FOMO was. And they're really tapping into that to make, to make us feel like we're missing out or feel guilty, or we really need this. I would be so much happier if I got, I deserve this. Don't hold back, treat yourself. I think that's definitely one, if not a predominant angle of advertising, but not the only one, but I think it's a huge one. I think there are a lot of ways to try to leverage human biases and beliefs, and that's definitely one of them. Basically, I think every advertiser's dream is for the product to become, like the the name of the product is associated with the object itself, right? So instead of saying a tissue, someone says, hand me a Kleenex, right? Or I'm going to go rollerblading today. Hey, do you know that rollerblade is actually a company name, not the inline skates, right? I actually did not know that. Yeah. So uh, advertisers are looking for you. That's what every company's dream is. They want to sort of be the name of the object. And so I think um, their goal is just to get you to think of it that way. Instead of chips, they want everyone to think of it as Doritos. Part of Coca-Cola is excited because people, half, half the country calls it a Coke, even though they're getting a Dr. Pepper. You know what I mean? So uh, man, you've got tons of sponsors on this thing, by the way. I'm just like shooting off all these products. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to like me after all this. <laughs> right. But, you know, think about it. Like I was at an airport in London, uh, Gatwick, and, but this is all over the place. Or go to Vegas in a casino. They make you walk through all sorts of shops just to even get to where you're going. They, the layouts of these places are designed to, I mean, I'm not going to, I'll use the word fine, to prey on you, right? You know, you're like running from terminal to terminal through a shop where there's like beautiful glass figurines and bottles of bourbon and snacks and beautiful like gifts. And it's just a really odd experience. Don't they employ psychologists to work out all the algorithms of placement of product? And like you said, you go to any museum or any sort of um, entertainment in the, the gift shop is you have to go through the gift shop to leave the old commercials for Lucky Strike or whatever it was, beautiful woman there in a bathing suit holding the cigarette. And it's like, this is what's waiting for you. If you just gotta, you just gotta light up a Lucky Strike. I mean, this is like, it makes it, there's an association with all these things. And again, it sounds pretty harsh, but would you say that it's some level of manipulation? Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there are people who pay a lot of money to create things that way. And then there are people who do it at a meta level, which I think is brilliant. People who can laugh at themselves and make fun of it. And in doing so, actually burn that particular product into your brain even more. I remember growing up uh, in Southern California and there was a Carl's Jr. commercial where there was a beautiful, I mean, beautiful scantily clad woman washing a car while eating a ridiculously sloppy burger. 
And I'm just like, what the hell does this have to do with eating a burger? And who eats a burger like this? Like, it's just like dripping all over the place. It's like you don't? On... No, I don't. <laughs> no. When I eat my burger, I'm, I'm usually in a hazmat suit. But she, she was like basically in a bathing suit with like spraying water and like eating. And I mean, and it was clearly the advertiser was sort of making fun of the industry. And in doing so, look, I'm talking about this commercial 25 years later. You know what I mean? And so sometimes I think that that's also a tactic. So when you say, you know, is this a, a goal? I think there are lots of them. And I think that's the advertising industry, you know, attracts really creative, smart people. There's a lot of money in it. And I think you see a lot of tactics. And it's all in the service of shopping and buying and acquiring. Well, it's, it's all about the almighty dollar, really. Mm-hmm. Let's be real here. And the irony is, like you said before, I'm sure the people and the psychologists and executives who are in that industry fall into it just the same because they're just as human as the rest of us. Oh, yeah. You go to one of their homes. I bet you they have more extravagant stuff than anyone else. Right. So that actually reminds me of something else I was curious about. Do you think it changes at all based on socioeconomic status? So if someone is uber wealthy, do they have to step it up and step it up and step it up and step it up? you know, I require this and then I need more. Does it last for a shorter period of time? Do they get the same thing out of it? Um, I don't know if this is related, correct me if I'm wrong, but when someone has an infinite amount of financial resources and so to acquire something doesn't really do something, obtaining something some other way, again, I'm not diagnosing, I don't know enough about kleptomania, of getting something else to sort of stimulate, does that change you know, because of the resources that they have? Can you just speak a little bit on, the, on that? I think it's a moderator. I do think it definitely has an impact. Although I do generally believe uh, that people, more often than not, will have a lifestyle that pushes their resources to the limit for the most part. So you could be Jeff Bezos and, well, he's a bad example because that guy just continues to be loaded. But if you have somebody that's fairly wealthy, they might actually, you'd be shocked. I mean, you and I are both therapists. And I mean, how often can you, I can't even count. I mean, there's so many times someone's come in and they make half a million dollars a year and they're struggling financially because they basically increase their standard of living because of the resources they bring in. And people have a hard time managing that, right? And people, they do 100% prey on people. So not all real estate agents, but a lot of real estate agents will push people to go at the higher end of their home sale and their range because that's bigger commission. I mean, that's just pure economics. That makes sense. So people are, are stretched a little bit more. They underestimate a lot of their things that they have to pay for. They don't really often think about disaster funds or things that could happen. And so I think after a certain level, right, I think there's got to be a threshold where anything below that, there's no discretionary funding. Anything above that threshold, I think that people tend to spend as much as they can to almost maximize it so that they are then a lot of times struggling financially. And this is not true for everybody. I don't want to as broad sweeping statement. There are a lot of people who are pretty conservative fiscally and do a good job of saving. But there are a lot of people who obtain gobs and gobs and gobs of money through salary or whatever, and they're just spending it constantly and they don't have any savings. You have people who are around that threshold who barely have any discretionary funds, who have a bigger savings account than the person over there who's just spending constantly. So in some ways, there's a moderating effect, but I don't think it's as powerful as we think it is. In other words, I think 
up to a certain threshold, people are going to be spending things functionally a little bit differently than the people who are above that threshold. So they'll be spending things more on survival. And then the people above the threshold have more discretionary funds. Even that is not that crystal clear though, right? Because even people below the threshold, because of what we talked about earlier, post-hoc rationalization and biases, they'll convince themselves that it's worth it to buy the new iPhone, even though they don't have the money to do it. And even though they don't have the money to eat. This is why you see a lot of people who are low SES or really struggling who have the beautiful new uh, designer jeans or the cell phone. It's because it's very easy to convince yourself that you deserve those things, that they're important to you, that you value that. And, you know, it gets you excited. It gives you a positive feeling, which is really, really powerful. Well said. In a way, this is the ultimate delayed gratification. If I have it in front of me, almost like the brownie, if I have the money, do I want to save it for later? And sometimes it's really, really, really later, you know, like a, like a retirement fund or things like that. And you also touched on the question of why maybe some people are attracted to different types of objects. So this one will spend whatever it is on an iPhone. This one will spend whatever it is on those designer jeans. This one will spend on a car. This one will spend on sports tickets, even though they're barely paying their electric bill and they're in this tiny apartment. They've always wanted to have a bigger apartment, but they'll do that rationalization. So I imagine that it just, it has to do with like what carries meaning for them is what attracts them to different types of acquiring. So it might be food, might be clothes, might be cars, might be real estate, might be events. Is that accurate? 100%. I mean, it really comes down to individual values and preferences, lifestyles, what the person was exposed to growing up. You know, there's a lot of research that says experiences tend to be to make people more satisfied than objects, possessions. I think that there's some truth to that. Although I think people are pretty quick to stockpile the possessions rather than the experience. Are you aware of cultural differences when it comes to acquiring and spending? In general, I think that you find that there's actually more consistency across cultures than people realize. Uh, for example, I treat and research hoarding disorder, and we find a pretty comparable presentation of hoarding across cultures. Um, we found a lot of similarities in China, for example. Some of the differences in China were some of the beliefs around the possessions. There's a bigger bent towards waste not, want not in China, whereas here there's a little bit more responsibility individual responsibility concerns. Like if I save this, it's important because I don't want to waste to the environment. Da, da, da. So I think sometimes the beliefs can be a little different, but the phenomena is pretty similar. And if you extend that to just acquiring, I think you're going to see that similar as well. Uh, but I do think there's probably some cultural variation in how much a society poo-poos that or looks down on it, whether or not materialism is highly valued in that society, whether or not resources are plentiful. We did talk about how that is also a moderator to some degree. But there's some skepticism and debate about that because there are some people who even think that, you know, generally speaking, hoarding has been relatively consistent over time. So people always ask me, do you think the Great Depression led to more hoarding? And I think, of course, at the individual level, there's probably cases or examples of that. But in general, the idea is that actually it, it's unclear that things like the Great Depression or what we're experiencing now uh, leads to more uh, hoarding or acquiring type behaviors. Um, well, I guess the, the, the rationale behind that is that people think that people who've been through the depression or I know in my world, people who've been through the Holocaust in, in World War II where the moldy crust of a bread was you know, worth its weight in gold. And then after the war, you dare leave anything on your plate. You know, if you know it's good for you, 
So I know plenty of people have had parents or grandparents like that because the meaning behind it is like, you cannot let that go. But you're saying that's not necessarily the case of that drastically impacts. uh, It's so uh, idiosyncratic, right? You're talking about a grandmother who's worried about eating every morsel of food, but that grandmother may not have that generalized to other areas of her life. She maybe doesn't have a house full of belongings or she doesn't have a home shopping network problem. A lot of her stuff is idiosyncratic to food and making sure you don't waste food. Whereas we see a ton of hoarding right now, where we did in March, because people were acquiring a ton of toilet paper and cleaning supplies. But those people don't have hoarding problems per se or acquiring problems. They are idiosyncratically dealing with a, a sort of an ephemeral trigger that seems to be rational or reasonable given the context. So there's a short supply of toilet paper right? Because everyone's buying it because they're worried about there not being anything to clean themselves with during this epidemic because of the supply chain. But those people, they don't have hoarding. So this is what I mean where I think in general, a lot of these mechanisms that are pretty normal in humans, especially when things get triggered like this, I think those are what go awry when we see pathological hoarding or acquiring or saving tendencies. So I think we all have those mechanisms that are there for a reason, right? I think it makes sense to acquire food if we think there's going to be a, a, a famine. But I think it's when those mechanisms go awry that it becomes a problem. Right. So it's almost like normal, quote unquote, normal behavior for abnormal times. Yeah. I mean, and I have trouble with normal and abnormal because it's so I context know. dependent, right? Agreed. Agreed. Like, I think it's normal to, to get too much toilet paper right now. I, I think it's probably not that unusual. And if you're just thinking about statistically normal and abnormal, like what's within a couple of standard deviations of what's average, I would say that has shifted to more toilet paper over the last three months. Don't you think the average toilet paper? Right. I wish we could put this, I could, we could put, we wish we could put this on some chart for everyone on like average rolls of toilet paper that people, you know, acquire. Uh, right. <laughs> so, you know, for the late person who's listening, uh, I don't want to get too in the weeds of it, but what's the, a, simple introductory explanation of what hoarding is? Uh, If you really had to boil it down to a single thing, it would be a pathological process around saving items, a difficulty discarding thing. It's really about above and beyond with difficulties, getting rid of things that other people find valueless, useless, worn, worthless. And the difficulty discarding has to be because it causes distress getting rid of it. Now, all the other stuff you think about with hoarding, that tends to then be a a downstream effect of what I just described. So if you have massive clutter in your house, that is a really common characterization of hoarding by the people out there. But in general, that's not actually necessary for you to get a diagnosis of hoarding. It really is about the difficulty discarding. If you have a parent who's constantly picking up and cleaning up after a child with hoarding, they could actually have a clutter-free environment. Or if you have a spouse who's picking up after you, you can have hoarding and disorder and actually not have a single ounce of clutter. And that often surprises people. But usually hoarding is defined by three areas. One of them is necessary, which is the difficulty discarding. What are the other two? The other two are clutter, in which there's so much stuff or possessions in an area that it makes the functional use of the room difficult or impossible. Can you use the bathroom for going to the bathroom? Can you watch TV in your living room? Can you sleep on your bed? Can you drive your car? These are the things that would be an indicator of clutter being too problematic. 
The third one is acquiring, but not everyone with hoarding has pathological acquiring. That's what I mean. So I, I'd have to look at the statistics, but I believe it's like 80 to 90% of people with hoarding have pathological acquiring behaviors, but not everyone. So it cannot be a necessary condition. Some people have difficulty discarding, but it's not because they're acquiring too much. They just can't get rid of the things that they have. So they might not be going out and spending tons or acquiring tons. It's whatever they do get stays. Exactly. And does it have to be things that have minimal to no value? That is the, yeah, because we need to be able to separate out people who are just collectors from people who are, and there's, you know, there are other indicators that distinguish collectors from people with hoarding. There are several that we could talk about if you wanted to, but really people with hoarding have a much higher tendency to have things that other people would find trash or valueless or unnecessary. Tupperware, newspapers, strings, bottle caps, books, magazines, right? That kind of thing. Right. So like without getting into the details, I worked with someone most definitely had a hoarding issue and a lot of it was trash. There's also a number of books that, you know, technically had value. You could objectively say they weren't worthless. They had value, but they were about all these different topics and learning different languages that he knew and acknowledged he would never, ever use it. He wasn't collecting it because they're a collector's item. He had trouble getting rid of it, but they did have value. Well, yeah. So objectively it had value, but sub- subjectively it wasn't, the value wasn't in the monetary collector's item. It was the monetary, the, the value in it was that he wanted to, I'm not guessing because I don't know who this patient is, but because I, it's something, something I've treated a lot. The idea is that probably there was some thought that he would read that book at some point and that he would get the knowledge that's in there and that he'd be missing out if he got rid of it. You bet. <laughs> so that's my thought. And that's often the case conceptualization or the, at least the function behind saving books like that. It's not because, oh, this is worth something. I have a first edition Treasure Island. That's worth a ton of money. Wow, I can't believe it. I'm so excited. I'm going to put it up. I'm going to show it. I'm going to display it. I'm going to talk about it. No, it's probably buried under a bunch of stuff. And the guy's probably like, I probably should read this because it's a classic. I want to know what I'm missing out on. What if it comes in handy at some point? I need to make use of this. I bought it. You know, like there's so many beliefs and rationalizations for right. saving. And for hoarding, it's about those beliefs rather than look at this cool book I got. You know what I mean? Right. And I think it is important for people to hear about the differentiation you said of, of the clutter, because you can easily look at clutter and jump to that conclusion. But plenty of people are just messy or they have an executive functioning issue mm-hmm. or an ADHD or you know whatever it is Depression. that they have a hard time organizing yeah. and it has yeah. nothing to do with hoarding. Yeah. So really the best way to distinguish it is whether that difficulty discarding is there, right? If you really press somebody to get rid of things and they really can't and their rationalization of their reasoning or beliefs are couched around things that seem unusual, like I might need this 50th piece of Tupperware, or I don't want to contribute to environmental waste, or what if somebody needs this later? There are a lot of reasons that people can come up with after the fact about why they save things. But really, if it's about, if you can sense that there's fear, anxiety about getting rid of things, that is unusual. If it's about things that other people would find not so hard to get rid of. Right. You know, I've heard the words, the terms thrown around compulsive spending. Yeah. Where would you like put that term in this context? I think it's probably a misnomer. Um, I would probably argue it's more impulsive spending. And really the difference between compulsive and impulsive is an academic argument that you could talk about for 10 hours straight and not come to a conclusion. 
and you have different theorists who have different ideas about this and the research is not 100% clear, but compulsive tends to uh, connote a little bit more of a thinking process, a little bit more plans, but also like someone is sort of twisting your arm or something is twisting your arm. And it's different a little bit than impulsive, which tends to be very fast and very, a little less thought or belief, um, a little less like someone's twisting your arm and a little bit more like you've just been pushed like to immediately do something. And it sort of has a, a highly charged component. But I think a big difference is also that impulsive tends to have a lot more positive experience. Whereas somebody who's compulsive or doing something compulsively is not really feeling the pleasure. It's feeling like they're trying to get relief. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I would think because of that, someone who has the compulsive might be able to see it more as problematic and perhaps be more motivated to make a change versus someone who, who gets pleasure out of it. It's really, really hard because I actually, I really do enjoy it. Absolutely. I mean, I think the people who have the impulsive behavior, the big time when they come in for treatment and when it causes all the problems, it's like immediately after, right? When the credit card bill comes. When the credit card bill comes, when they know they're going to get in a fight, when they just devoured the brownie and they're feeling bad about it. I personally find impulsivity harder to treat than compulsivity because compulsivity really has the mechanism of negative reinforcement fighting it, meaning people are doing things to rid themselves of a bad feeling. So people are engaging in the behavior because they want relief. Whereas I find impulsivity to be a double whammy, two mechanisms. I think that the negative reinforcement is also there, that people are doing things for relief, right? So they might buy things to feel better, for example. But I also think that there's the positive reinforcement. I think that they're actually feeling, they're getting a boost of something pleasurable. And so you're kind of fighting two mechanisms. And I find impulsive behavior, like habits, for example, like uh, skin picking, hair pulling, nail biting, or things like shopping or sex or gambling or drug use. Those things are more impulsive uh, control disorders, not compulsive behavior. So I constantly, and I'm sure Shmuel, you get this too, constantly get people calling for services who are like, yep, I have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. I have compulsive masturbating. And you're like, okay, maybe, but let's find out a little bit more. And so you do a functional analysis where we're talking about the function of the behavior. Well, what's the function of the, the excessive masturbating? Well, the person's like, well, you know, do you get a lot of pleasure out of it? And he's like, yeah, I kind of do. I just feel really ashamed afterwards. And I look forward to the masturbating. I like, I get excited all day for it. I like set the mood. I get ready, like, you know, and you're like, okay, that's not OCD, bud. Right. Because that's, that's not compulsive masturbating that's it that's an impulsive sexual behavior so and then i imagine there's a whole different approach you're not going to give a whole uh, presentation now on treatment but i imagine that there's a whole different approach if you're deriving pleasure from it versus there's that negative reinforcement i mean yeah the treatments are a little bit different but they really leverage a lot of the same principles it's really about the person learning to sit with their urges or or, or beliefs and challenging them and recognizing that you can make a different choice, that you can fight those primal urges with your prefrontal cortex. And it's not easy and it's okay to be frustrated by it and to learn how to engage in behavior that either is impossible to carry out at the same time as the compulsive or, uh, or impulsive behavior or teaches you that you don't need to choose to do it. But the approach you take really depends on the presentation of what the habit or the behavior or the compulsion. But in some ways, the principles are pretty similar. Right. Now, if someone there is listening who's perhaps 
a parent or someone who's a bit younger, who hasn't been entrenched in certain habits. It, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm a dad and I come to you and I say, listen, I got young kids and I want to help build, you know, a healthy relationship with spending and acquiring, but they're also being bombarded, like we said earlier, with all these different messages and, and this person's getting this and this brings this. And, and there, is, there is truth to that because for better or for worse, there's status associated with acquiring and there's pleasure and all that. How would you guide someone on how to build that balanced, healthy relationship with acquiring? It's uh, in 30 words or less. <laughs> how do you teach someone to have a healthy relationship with buying? I don't think there is such a thing as... I don't know what healthy buying, I mean, I think it's a continuum like everything else. And it's so context dependent. I think something, sometimes a snapshot would be, yeah, that's a healthy behavior, but then you take it out of its time and space and place and it's unhealthy. So I think a lot of it is really not about whether a judgment call of something's healthy or not. It's really about, do you have the judgment to filter in the time and to understand and take in all those variables, time, space, place, context, and be able to come up like almost like an internal algorithm or even a heuristic of, okay, this is a sound, healthy decision based on all the, the mosaic of evidence that's, that's there. And for someone like Jeff Bezos, who's making more money per minute than you and I are going to make in a lifetime, you know, his formula is going to be much different than ours. Right. It goes back to what I say all the time to people, a problem ain't a problem until it's a problem. Right. So for me to spend $10,000 on something, yeah, would be problematic for Jeff, our good buddy, Jeff, for him to drop $10,000, you wouldn't even notice, multiply that by 10. So you're right. It's in a vacuum. It's not, something's not unhealthy or problematic for one person as it is for the other person. It's all relative basically. Right. Right. And it's also time like that your buddy, Jeff, unless he was born a trust fund baby, he probably, when he was 16, if he dropped $100,000 on something, that'd be crazy. Right. But now that he's, how old are you? Like 85? So now that he's 85, and now that he's much older, he's, you know, that maybe is much more doable for him. I had this thought, even recently, I had a, like, base. it's very common here in Chicago. We had our basement flooded with both groundwater and sewage all at the same time. It was a lovely experience. And uh, it's actually really common in the area I grew up because our homes are like, you know, 112 years old and basements are underground and there's it's on a, a water table that's you know just really unkind and so I'm just sitting there going my god this is going to just cost so much damn money to, to get this fixed up and so now but I you know it was very easy you know $25,000 later with everything fixed to be like if this had happened to me in a different stage of my life I would have been really screwed but even now it's hard for me to swallow a $25,000 bill but maybe 20 years from now, that'll be a non-issue. Like that would be a nothing, a nothing burger, they say. You know what I mean? So right. really, it all depends on the variables that are floating through your head. And I think it's so individualistic in terms of what is healthy or unhealthy. It's less of a judgment called black or white, more about more or less healthy. Right. And this is, this is why, you know, some parents choose to have allowances so you can talk to them about it and you can sort of navigate spending money and the costs and benefits and helping build that judgment, like you said. Well, this is, this is your money and this is your budget. And, you know, you can have the autonomy and you can choose to spend it all on a 50 Snickers bars. Awesome. 
great. And then sort of, okay, what, you know, how do we learn from that? Besides, That's your segue to your next uh, blog on binge eating. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, the cost might be is, is that you're in the bathroom for three days after eating all those Snickers <laughs> exactly. bars, you know, or you don't have money for the Slurpee back to 7-Eleven, go 7-Eleven. And then just sort of like that's, I guess that's one way to help build this conversation about it. You know, we're going we're gonna to wrap up soon because I know we're up against the clock here. I'm curious how this has all been influenced. I don't know how many years it's been in existence, but the idea, uh, I mean, credit has been in existence forever, but credit cards and being able to purchase online. And it's almost like, you know, I know my kids and other kids, you know, they use a credit card. It's like, they have to hit a certain amount of development to be able to understand like, this is money. This is not money. This is a game. This is just like you use this card and you just can get things. So how has that influenced the whole acquiring? I think it does for sure. I think we are moving farther and farther away from the reality of goods and value and service and value. Back in the day, you would trade you know, a piece of bread for a service, the bartering system where you would actually physically exchange your resource for their resource. You take some bread, I'll take some milk. I mean, soon it became symbolic, right? Here's a, a nickel for a glass of milk. And that nickel carried value. And now that's even become secondary to, all right, I have this piece of plastic that theoretically contains a ton of nickels on it. And this piece of plastic can keep track of all the nickels that I have and you have. And now it's even become weirder. Now it's not a plastic card. Now it's like Bitcoin that represents a potential plastic card, which represents a potential symbolic currency, which represents a glass of milk. It's just friggin' mind-boggling. And I think the more degrees you get away, I think the easier it is to, to not think about the actual thing that you're doing, which is trading your bread for a glass of milk. Yeah, soon it's going to be emojis. Yeah. yeah. Emojis. I mean, I'm no economist, but that's sort of what inflation, the well, money is supposed to represent, isn't it? Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't money supposed to, paper money, paper currency supposed to represent actual gold that we had in the bank? Isn't that how it, the, but with inflation, things have changed drastically and, you know, we're $10 trillion in debt and so it doesn't have the same value? Yeah, you're getting outside my area of expertise. Okay. Well, it's really get, outside of my get, expertise too. So. <laughs> you're going to have to get the uh, the Fed chairman in here to talk about this. Funny you mentioned, he's next. He's next. Oh, he's next, the Fed chairman. Okay. <laughs> so, so we sort of like talked about general types of behaviors and then problematic behaviors. We didn't get into the weeds of hoarding and how it becomes a problem in treatment. If someone wanted to learn more about that, what would you suggest they do? Um, they go to the International OCD Foundation, iocdf.org. They have a whole hoarding center uh, where you can learn everything there you, you ever want to know about hoarding. Clinicians or uh, providers who are interested in this stuff, you can check out my book uh, written by myself and Jed Sieve, who I think has been on your podcast before. So Chasset and Sieve, S-I-E-V. It's a relatively inexpensive book. Please buy it. I get, a, uh, I get a couple of shingles for it so that I can then spend lavishly based on my Facebook ads. You could read, uh, if you want to lay perspectives, the book Stuff by Randy Frost is really good. There's documentaries on this stuff. There are people in, in history that have had this. The Collier Brothers, Howard Hughes, 
look up kleptomania. You can look up shopping addiction. Be very careful watching some of these shows like Hoarders or Buried Alive because they really, the, my research in my research lab has shown that they really contribute uh, to stigma of hoarding, which in, it has also been shown to be, be linked in some of my research to treatment resistance and treatment ambivalence. So I'm very thoughtful about uh, stigma and how much hoarding, my research shows that hoarding in some ways is viewed by the public just as stigmatizingly, is that a word, as uh, people with psychotic spectrum disorders, schizophrenia. And so I think we need to be very careful about how we talk about these things. And I think a lot of the media depictions don't help. Wow. So if you're gonna if you're gonna research this stuff, I wouldn't suggest starting with those reality TV shows. Right, that's unfortunate. And there's really a lot of influence in the media. They could it could be really helpful and influential in a positive way, or it can be really negative. So, all right, thank you for all those resources, and I hope you all found this helpful. If you did, besides for supporting Greg by just buying books and books and books to fill all your shelves, so he can spend on lavish items. Right. You could support us by having more of these podcasts by reviewing, subscribing, sharing, no money involved. I guess you want to call it acquiring if you subscribe to the podcast. Rating, reviewing, all that stuff is helpful to us to help support it. All we're trying to do is just trying to bring these topics to the public, make it a conversation, and hopefully help some people out there. So thank you for joining us, Greg. A pleasure as always. Thank you very much, Will. It's been a pleasure.